Be sure to check out Sylvie's Love, now on Amazon Prime Video. Set in Harlem in the 1950s, a young woman meets an aspiring saxophonist in her father's record shop, and their love ignites a sweeping romance that transcends the changing times. Watch Sylvie's Love, directed by Eugene Ash, starring Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah, and produced by Moth Board member Gabrielle Glore on Amazon Prime Video. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Burns, Artistic Director of the Moth, and I'll be your host. The Moth is true stories, personal stories, told without notes in front of a live audience. In 2003, the Moth was invited to the U.S. Comedy Arts Festival in Aspen. We'd initially turned down the festival. Stand-up is really different from storytelling, and one of the things that makes for a great Moth story is the willingness of the storyteller to show vulnerability, and we thought the comics would just go for laughs. We were wrong. It turned out that comics were dying for the chance to get away from their one-liners and tell a real story. And one of the best was Mike Birbiglia, who at 24 was also one of the youngest comics at the festival. I actually remember it really well, because I was scared to death. Here's Mike, still very funny, but taking on something a little more serious. Six years ago, I was asked to host the World Travel Awards, uh, which is not an event that I had heard of before. Uh, it is, uh, it's not televised, uh, it's not, it's not uh, webcast, it's not even barely attended. Um, <laughs> But the real reason I was excited to go was that it was the first time that my girlfriend Abby and I had, had ever gone on a vacation. And uh, we'd been together since college. And, uh, and, and I'd always dreamed of going on, on one of these tropical Caribbean vacations. I would, I would watch those, those commercials when I was a kid, you know, where, the, where the, they'd show these shots of, the, of the, 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 the soft, sandy beaches and the clear, clear water. And, someone in a local accent would say, come to Jamaica. And I would think, I want to come to Jamaica, but I can't afford it, you know. <laughs> that was the thing, is Abby and I were so broke, you know, it's like when you don't have any money, vacation seems like a, a completely ridiculous concept. You're like, well, well, usually our life costs about $85 per week. Uh, and on vacation, it would cost two to $3,000 per week. So I don't know if we're going to do that this year. <laughs> and uh, so I was so excited because I, I, we were going to go on, on, on this vacation. And I thought, this is, this is going to fix everything. Um, Abby and I had just uh, gone to my brother Joe's wedding, and uh, a lot of people were asking me whether or not Abby and I were going to get married. And, you know, this was a tough question because I was in love with Abby. I mean, we had been together since college, and I, I couldn't imagine the idea of breaking up. And, and um, so I, I would just kind of nod and say, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I think so. But... But I, I knew that I, I wasn't really ready for it, but I, I never said it. And 
you know, Abby, I don't think, was convinced that we should get married either. I mean, I think that both of us were afraid of the idea of, of breaking up. I mean, we were deeply afraid of what, what our lives would be outside of being together because we had never done that in our, in our adult lives. And, and what was difficult about this was that we had always shared our fears with each other and, and we couldn't share this, this fear. I mean, Abby had some, some pretty eccentric fears. She was afraid of uh, flying uh, and water which is an interesting combination um, of flying. So, so much so that when we were in college, she went to visit her, her parents in Florida and she went to the airport and she looked at the plane through the window and she said, no, I'm not going. And then she took a cab to the train station and took a train uh, 25 hours to Florida. And so it was that level of fear that she had for us breaking up, uh, as did I. And we were at my brother Joe's wedding, and, um, and they were uh, taking these family photos, and my mother pulled me into one, and she said, do you want Abby in the photo? And, and I said, yes, but there was a slight pause. I, I said, yeah. And later that night when we got home, Abby said, what, what was that pause? Why, were that, why was there that pause? And I said, you know me, I, I pause. I'm a pauser. <laughs> and she said, if we're not going to get married, I go, of course we're going to get married. And she said, when? And what I should have said was, can we talk about this next summer? <laughs> what I did say was, next summer. And she called everyone we knew and told them we were getting married. And that's how I got engaged without getting engaged. Abby and I uh, started planning our wedding. And, and I think that she could sense that, that I wasn't completely into it. And I, I kept trying to be, you know, and I, I, I kept wanting to fix it. I actually thought that the St. Lucia trip would be exactly what we needed to get back on track. And so we land at the St. Lucia International Airport and we are picked up in a limo, which is a very extravagant and amazing way to, to travel unless you're on an island uh, that is mountainous. Um, we, it, we went on a 39-mile trip through hills and mountains and we really could have used like a like a Range Rover or like a Ford Explorer any car with shocks would have been fine but we're just kind of bumping up and down and it took about two and a half hours and we're just staring at each other with just utter ire and 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 we're just criticizing the driver and and then we're criticizing each other and then just picking each other apart a lot of sentences uh beginning with, well, if you're going to bring up that, uh, and ending with something completely toxic. I mean, the phrase, if you're going to bring up that, never ends with, I'm going to tell you I love you. <laughs> By the time we arrived, we were 
just at our, our wits end and we rolled out of the, of the car, back of the car and we go to the front desk to check in and they say the room is not ready. And they say you can go down at the, uh, at the beach and we'll set up a table and you can have drinks on the house. And so we, we go down to the beach and, and there's the soft sand and, and the clear water exactly like I had seen in the commercials. It was as though the water were speaking to me. Come to Jamaica. <laughs> and Abby looks me in the eye and she says, I think we should break up. <laughs> and I, I start crying, uh, like, like I just witnessed the death of my best friend. And, and she starts crying the same way and we're just uh, we're just crying and people around us are, are, are so mad at us, you know, because they're, they're having like their dream vacation and we are, we are like these awful, like sad extras in their dream, you know, and they're just like, can't you do that somewhere else, you know, like any Starbucks in Manhattan would be fine, you know. But, but just not here, and, and, and we're crying, and we're just looking out at that perfect water, and that was day one of our Caribbean dream vacation. <laughs> the thing about breaking up on an island is that <laughs> you can't leave. Um, there's nowhere to go. Uh, uh, the great Mitch Hedberg had a joke where, where he said that you know, the worst place to get in an argument is in a tent. What are you gonna do? Slam the flap? <laughs> an island is even worse, you know. What are you gonna do? Just flap your wings and fly away, you know, build one of those Gilligan's Island palm tree planes. Um, we, were, uh, <clears throat> we were in this hotel room for days and and we wouldn't really speak, you know, she would, she would leave for hours at a time, wouldn't say where she was going, then she'd come back and I'd say, hey, where were you? And she'd just go, out. <laughs> and, and then eventually I was upgraded to, to her business voice, you know, that kind of cheery, professional and distant voice that you sometimes get in a breakup where she'd say, what can I do for you? You know, and I'd say, I... <laughs> I don't know, I thought maybe we could go for a walk tonight. And she'd be like, we're not open past six. <laughs> and I'd be like, I don't know, maybe we could go get coffee. And she'd say, if you'd like to admit you're wrong, press one. <laughs> if, you'd, if you'd like to discuss your faults in detail, press two. <laughs> if you'd like to stop going on the road, press all the buttons at once and give up your dreams. We, um, I was getting the, the business voice uh, for days, and finally I just said, you know, why don't we just do something? I mean, we're here in St. Lucia. Why don't we just do what friends would do if they were on an island? And so she picked up the, uh, the brochure, and she said, let's go scuba diving, which was insane, <laughs> because she's afraid of water. <laughs> And scuba diving is like flying underwater. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever done scuba diving, but it's really this kind of, it kind of transcends rules entirely, you know, things that you've accepted your whole life, like, 
you can't breathe underwater. Uh, and if you see a shark, run away. Um, we're swimming through schools of thousands of tropical fish and, and even sharks, and so we get out of the water and we're just exhilarated, like we can't believe it, like that was amazing, you know? And, and I go to put my arm around her and he, she shrinks away and she's, she says, yeah, that was fun. That night we went out uh, to the beach and we swam out to uh, one of these floating trampolines. Have you ever seen these things where we were jumping up in the air like seven or eight feet in the air like that scene in the movie Big and we're laughing and having a great time and I'm like, this is, this is like old times, like we're, we're gonna make this work. And, and she jumps up in, into the water and, and surfaces and I jump after her and I surface right behind her and I put my arms around her waist and she just pulls away just an inch but it felt like like miles and that's the distance that I would feel from Abby forever the next morning she said I think I'm just gonna go home early and I said oh, that makes sense and and uh, I had to stay to host the world travel awards <laughs> But I, I said to the guy who I was, I was working for, I said, is there any other way to get to the airport other than that limousine on the, through the mountains? And he said, oh, I can arrange for a helicopter. <laughs> and I said, I don't think that's gonna work for Abby. Uh, and, and she chimed in, she goes, no, that's fine. A helicopter. And so I took her to the helicopter landing and it, it is the scariest helicopter I have ever seen in my life, even in movies about scary helicopters. I mean, this, it's just like this rickety thing held together by scotch tape and it was like, uh, the, the pilot looked like he was 15 or, or like a, a young 17, you know? And, and I said to Abby, I go, you know, you don't have to go on this thing. And she goes, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. And she gets on the helicopter and, uh, and they soar above the, uh, above the rainforest. And, and it was the loneliest that I've ever felt, you know. I, I felt like there was a part of me that was, that was gone. But I couldn't help but marvel at, at Abby, that, at what she had done that week. She, she, had, she had ended a relationship that, that seeming, seemingly couldn't end. And then she had gone scuba diving. And then she flew away. That was Mike Rabiglia. He's a performer and the author of the book Sleep Off With Me and Other Painfully True Stories. Mike and I talked about how he chooses which moments of his life will end up on stage. You know what I've what I've found over the years in telling stories, and this is, is you know you're you know you're on the right track with finding a story if it makes you very uncomfortable to tell it. <laughs> if yeah. if you want if you want to bail out at many stages of it, you know you're going to in the right direction. I asked Mike about the difference between telling the story at the Moth or in a theater versus being in a comedy club. Well, the advantage you have in a in a theater is that people listen and they're they're focused. They've you're, you have their undivided attention. They're not ordering nachos ever <laughs> or rarely. It's about the story. It has to be about the story. 
And if the jokes can help the story, then it's like the most incredible marriage. But but if they can't, it's uh, it's an estranged relationship. There's also laughs in very different places. If you tell a moth story, often the, the laughs come with the audience uh, kind of experiencing what you're experiencing with you, as opposed to laughing at you or laughing at the expense of someone else in the story. There, it's It's more like... I don't know. The moth feels like people sitting around a campfire. The The audience will not reject you ever. No matter what you say, if it's, if it's true to you, they will stand behind you. You can listen to the rest of my conversation with Mike at our website, themoth.org. So after you jump out of your boyfriend's car at a light, barefoot, at night, with no money or phone, what do you do next? That's coming up on the Moth Radio Hour. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Catherine Burns, the Moth's Artistic Director. Our next story is from Jennifer Hickson from a Moth Night with the theme, Stories About Smoke. Here's Jennifer live at the Moth. I reached over and secretly undid my seatbelt. And when his foot hit the brake at the red light, I flung open the door and I ran. I had no shoes on, I was crying, I had no wallet, but I was okay because I had my cigarettes. (laughs) And I didn't want any part of freedom if I didn't have my cigarettes. When you live with someone who has a temper, a very bad temper, a very, very bad temper. You learn to play around that. You learn, this time I'll play possum, and next time I'll just be real nice, or I'll say yes to everything, or you make yourself scarce, or you run. And this was one of the times when you just run. And as I was running, I thought this was a great place to jump out because they were big lawns and they were cul-de-sacs. And sometimes he would come after me and drive and yell stuff at me to get back in, get back in. And I was like, no, I'm out of here. This is great. And I went and hid behind a cabana and he left. And I had my cigarettes. And uh, I started to walk in this beautiful neighborhood. It was 1030 at night. And it was silent and lovely. And... There was no sound except for sprinklers. And I was enjoying myself and enjoying the absence of anger and enjoying these few hours I knew I'd have of freedom. And just to perfect it, I thought, I'll have a smoke. And then it occurred to me, with horrifying speed, I don't have a light. (laughs) Just then, as if an answer, I see a figure up ahead. Who is that? It's not him, okay? 
They don't have a dog. Who is that? What, what are they doing out on this suburban street? And the person comes closer, and I can see it's a woman. And then I can see she has her hands in her face. Oh, she's crying. And then she sees me, and she composes herself. And she gets closer, and I see she has no shoes on. She has no shoes on, and she's crying, and she's out on the street. I recognize her, though I've never met her. And just as she passes me, she says, you got a cigarette? And I say, you got a light? And she says, damn, I hope so. And then first she digs into her cutoffs in the front, nothing, and then digs in the back, and then she has this vest on that has 50 million little pockets on it. She's checking and checking, and it's looking bad. It's looking very bad. She digs back in the front again, deep, deep, and she pulls out a pack of matches that have been laundered at least once. (laughs) We open it up, and there is one match inside. Okay, oh my God. This takes on, it's like Nassau now. We gotta like, how are we gonna do it? Okay, and we we hunker down, we crouch on the ground, and where's the wind coming from? We're stopping. I take out my cigarettes, let's get the cigarettes ready. Oh, my brand, she says, not surprising. And we both have our cigarettes at the ready. She strikes once, nothing. She strikes again, yes, fire. Puff, inhale, Mm, sweet kiss of that cigarette. And we sit there, and we're loving the nicotine, and we both need this right now. I can tell, the night's been tough. Immediately we start to reminisce about our 30-second relationship. I didn't think that was gonna happen. Me neither. Oh man, that was close. Oh, I'm so lucky I saw you, yeah. (laughs) Then she surprises me by saying, what was the fight about? And I say, "What, what are they all about? And she said, I know what you mean. She said, was it a bad one? And I said, you know, like medium. She said, oh, and we start to trade stories about our lives. We're both from up north. We're both kind of newish to the neighborhood. This is in Florida. We both went to college, not great colleges, but man, we graduated. And I'm actually finding myself a little jealous of her because she has this really cool job washing dogs. (laughs) She had horses back home and she really loves animals and she wants to be a vet. And I'm like, man, you're halfway there. I'm a waitress at an ice cream parlor, so that's not, I don't know where I want to be, but I know it's not that. And then it gets a little deeper, and we share some other stuff about what our lives are like, things that I can't ever tell people at home. This girl, I can tell her the really ugly stuff, and she still understands how it can still be pretty. She understands, like, how nice he's going to be when I get home, and how sweet that'll be. We are chain smoking off each other. Oh, that's almost out, come on. And we, we go through this entire pack until it's gone. And then I say, you know what? Uh, this is a little funny, but you're gonna have to show me the way to get home. Because although I'm 23 years old, I don't have my driver's license yet. And I just jumped out right when I needed to. And she says, well, why don't you come back to my house and I'll give you a ride. I said, okay, great. And we start walking and uh, we get to this um, lots of uh, lights and uh, the roads are getting wider and wider, and there's more cars, and I see um, lots of stores, you know, laundry mats and dollar stores and emerge centers, and then we cross over US-1, and uh, she leads me to some place, and I think, no, but yes, Carl's Efficiency Apartments. This girl lives there. 
and it's horrible, and it's lit up so bright just to illuminate the horribleness of it. It's the kind of place where you drive your car right up, and the door's right there, and there's 50 million cigarette butts outside, and there's like doors one through seven, and you know behind every single door there's some horrible misery going on. There's someone crying or drunk or lonely or cruel, and I think, oh, gosh, she lives here. How awful. We go to the door, door number four, and she very, very quietly keys in. As soon as the door opens, I hear the blare of television come out, and on the blue light of the television, the smoke of a hundred cigarettes in that little crack of light. And I hear the man, and he says, where were you? And she says, never mind, I'm back. And he says, you all right? And she says, yeah, I'm all right. And then she turns to me and says, you want a beer? And he says, who the fuck is that? And she pulls me over, and he sees me, and he says, oh, hey, I'm not a threat. Just then, he takes a drag of his cigarette, a very hard, hard drag, you know, the kind that makes the end of it really heat up, hot, 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 and long, and it's a little scary, and I follow the cigarette down, because I'm afraid of that head falling off, and I'm surprised when I see, in the crook of his arm, a little boy sleeping, a toddler, and I think, <gasps> and just then, the girl reaches underneath the bed and takes out a carton, and she taps out the last pack of cigarettes in there, and on the way up, she kisses the little boy, and then she kisses the man, and the man says again, you all right? And she says, yeah, I'm just going to go out and smoke with her. And so we go outside and sit amongst the cigarette butts and smoke. And I say, wow, that's your little boy? She says, yeah, isn't he beautiful? And I say, yeah, he is. He is beautiful. She's my light. He keeps me going, she says. We finish our cigarettes. She finishes her beer. I don't have a beer, because I can't go home with beer on my breath. And she goes inside to get the keys. She takes too long in there getting the keys, and I think something must be wrong. And she comes out and she says, look, I'm really sorry, but um, like we don't have any gas in the car. It's already on E, and he needs to get to work in the morning. And um, I, you know, I, I'm going to walk to work as it is. So what I did was, though, here, look, I drew out this map for you, and you're really, you're like a mile and a half from home, and um, if you walk three streets over, you'll be back on that pretty street, and you just take that, and you'll be fine. And she also has wrapped up in toilet paper seven cigarettes for me, a third of her pack, I note, and a new pack of matches. And she tells me, goodbye, and that was great to meet you, and how lucky, and that was fun, and, you know, let's be friends. And I say, yeah, okay. And I walk away, but I kind of know we're not going to be friends. I might not ever see her again. And I kind of know, I don't think she's ever going to be a vet. And I cross and I walk away. And maybe this would have seemed like a visit from my possible future and scary, but it kind of does the opposite. On the walk home, I'm like, man, that was really grim over there. And I'm going home now to my nice boyfriend, and he is going to be so extra happy to see me. And we have a one-bedroom apartment, and we have two trees, and there's a yard, and we have this jar in the kitchen where there's, like, loose money that we can use for anything, like we would never, ever run out of gas. And, um, and I don't have a baby, you know? So I can leave whenever I want. I smoked all seven cigarettes on the way home. And people who have never smoked cigarettes just think, ick disgusting and poison, but unless you've had them and held them dear, you don't know how great they can be and what friends and comfort and kinship they can bring. It took me a long time to quit, 
that boyfriend, and then to quit smoking. And uh, sometimes I still miss the smoking. That was Jennifer Hickson. She's a senior producer at The Moth. She's worried that the story will seem to be promoting smoking. Jen says, smoking is bad for you. So are abusive relationships. She knows that now. Moth storytellers sometimes choose to delve into their most painful memories. That was true for our next storyteller, Al Letson. We want to warn you that his story has content that could be upsetting, particularly if there are children listening. Here's Al live at the Moth. So uh, it's uh, late March, several years ago, and I'm in the Jacksonville Memorial Gardens uh, graveyard. And uh, I've got on this black suit, and I'm lost. And this black suit, I wear it here every, every time I come here this time of year. And by the end of the day, the suit will have grass stains on my knees, I'll have walked this area several times looking for a grave that I can't find. And, um, and I will feel like the worst human being in the world, the worst ex-husband, the worst father, because I, I, I can't find the grave of my daughter. Lauren LaShonda Letson was born March 27, 1999. Uh, she also passed away on that day. Uh, but how we got there is a long story. It goes back way back. You see, I got married really young. I mean, really young. So young that I was actually playing with Legos and reading comic books at the time. And, you know, the marriage might have worked out. It, it, it may have been okay, but... Right after we got married, I got a call from the Seattle, Tacoma, Washington um, District Attorney's Office telling me that I had a paternity case against me. See, when I was 17, I had gotten a girl pregnant. And I didn't know about it. She moved away, and six years later, she popped up. And so that really put a lot of strain on a young relationship. Um, and so at the time, uh, I was a flight attendant, which was really cool because when things got bad at home, I could get on the plane and leave. But, you know, as time went on um, and you have a couple that has the emotional maturity of the entire cast of 90210, <laughs> the first series, not the second, <laughs> things get really hard, you know, and, and it just became a little bit impossible and things were falling apart everywhere. And as we all know, when a marriage is falling apart, the number one thing you need to do to bring that marriage together is have a baby. And so I wasn't really excited about having a child. I mean, yeah, I, I just kind of like, was like, you know, whatever, it's, it's, it's whatever. I, I would go to all the doctor visits. I, I did all the requisite things that, you know, a, a good husband and father does. But I, I wasn't crazy about the idea. And then one night, um, I was in the bed with my ex-wife, and um, my back was to her stomach. And the baby started kicking me. And she kicked so hard, it was really late at night, like one o'clock. She kicked so hard that it woke me up. And you know, I, I'm a little groggy, and so I poked her back. <laughs> and she kicked. And I poked, and she kicked, and I poked, and she kicked. And, and we must have played for about a half an hour. You know, it was, it was a great time until her mother woke up and told us both to go to sleep. 
So um, after that, you know, I, I fell in love. I, I would play music on her stomach. I would sing to her. I would read books to her. The whole night, I, I fell in love with this little girl. And when my wife gave birth to uh, my daughter, Brooklyn, she came out and she was screaming. And I walked over to her and I said, what's the matter, baby? And she stopped screaming and she turned her head towards me. And after that, like, it, the deal was sealed. Like, I, you know, she, was, uh, she would cry sometimes, uh, you know, as an infant. And all I had to do was come in the room and she'd stop. Uh, I used to have conferences with her when she was like six months old telling her, you know, listen, you have to be nicer to your mother. It's not cool that you only want me. She, she was really tight with me. But the marriage didn't get better. Things were falling apart. And I, I wasn't the best husband. I was really immature. And after a while, I decided that I just, I had to leave. So we, we started doing the uh, breakup game where you go away for a week and then you come back and you go away for a week and you come back. And one of those weeks when I had come back, one thing led to another and she got pregnant again. And I, I thought to myself, well, okay, okay, I, I, I can't leave now. Like, you know, what kind of man would I be to leave this woman with two little babies? So I decided to stick it out, but I was just so angry. You know, because I felt like my entire life I didn't know who I was, and I was finally beginning to figure that out. And, and who I was wasn't really fitting into this concept of, of what this marriage was. But I decided to stay, and, you know, I did all the things that a good father is supposed to do. I went to all the doctor's appointments, you know, I, I tolerated the baby shower, all of that stuff. You know, and um, one night I was laying in the bed, and... Her stomach was pressed up against my back, and the baby kicked. And this time, I was so angry and so ticked off that I got up and got out the bed and slept somewhere else. And every time when the baby would kick and I would feel it, I would get up and move. And I, I didn't play any songs for her. I didn't talk to her. I didn't do anything. You know, I, I just pulled myself away from it. So one morning I, I wake up and, um, and her mother says that something's wrong. And later she would tell me that uh, when she woke up, she didn't feel pregnant anymore. And it's, it's funny, like when you go to the hospital under these circumstances, it's quiet. Nobody really talks to you. No one wants to say anything. The nurses kind of keep their eyes on the ground. And um, they finally come over and they tell us that they couldn't find a heartbeat and my daughter Lauren was gone. She was uh, nine months pregnant, about a week away from delivering the baby. And to me, it just seems so crazy. Like I understood like, you know, a miscarriage happening earlier in, in, in the pregnancy, but like at nine months, you, you think that like nothing's gonna go wrong at this point. So at nine months pregnant, you, you have to give birth. And it's just like, you know, regular labor. And, and I remember everything about it. I remember the room. I remember the way it smelled. I remember the weight of Lauren after she was born and, and they gave me to her, exactly how she felt in my arms. And I, I remember being surprised at how warm her body was. You know, I, I thought because she had passed away that her body would be cold, but it was really warm. And, and when I looked down at her, she was the spitting image of my daughter, Brooklyn. It could have been her twin. At, at this point, Brooklyn is, is about a year old or so. And I'm, uh, I'm looking at this baby in my arms, 
And for the first time, you know, I want her more than anything in this world. And there's a nurse behind me. And I, I, I think to myself, if I don't hand her to the nurse now, I won't ever be able to let her go. So I, I give her to the nurse and she walks away. And um, God, I just remember everything. My mom was in the room and she had brought Brooklyn to uh, the hospital to see us. And Brooklyn actually took her first steps in that hospital room. She crawled, walked, stumbled over to me. And um, a couple days later, we, we, we do the funeral at the Jacksonville Memorial and I'm in that black suit. And I remember my family being there and I remember my mother giving me all the cards for bereavement. I, I put one of them in my suit pocket and they must have came off of, of, of some flowers because there was a pin and the pin pricked me. And it really hurt. And right when that pin pricked me, my mother said to hold on to these cards because you needed to write thank you cards to everybody. And I thought, I'm not writing anybody any fucking thank you cards. And I'm there and they bury my daughter and, uh, and, and we go home. And you know, I, I stay with her mother about as long as I could, as, as what I felt was a proper amount of time before I could actually leave. Because I just, I couldn't take it anymore. I, 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 I couldn't stand to look at her. Not because I thought that she had done something wrong, but because I felt that I had done something wrong. Like I, 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 I couldn't stand her even looking my way because I just felt so guilty. And my, my little girl, as she's grown up, you know, she was fascinated with the idea that she has a little sister that passed away and she would ask me about it all the time and, and I would tell her anything she wanted to know except when she asked me how she died. I, I, I just could never bring that up. I could give her the physical explanation of, you know, the umbilical cord got wrapped around her legs, it cut off circulation and she passed away. I could give her that but I felt in my heart that that was a lie. That she died because because she thought her daddy didn't love her. And it ate me up. And I couldn't tell my little girl that. So I would always tell her just to ask somebody else, ask her mother. Years later, I, I meet somebody, I fall in love, and, and, and you know, there are just some things that don't ever get better. You know, and, and, and the person that I meet, she tells me that I'm great. I, I tell her that I'm a murderer. She tells me, no, you're not. And, and you know, it, 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 it feels good for someone to say it, even though I didn't believe it. And we get married, she gets pregnant, and I'm, I'm overjoyed, I'm, I'm so happy, you know. And I am there, you know, more than I've ever been, like I'm there at the doctor's things. I was actually happy at the baby shower, but, <laughs> yeah, it was a task. But, <laughs> but you know, I have this fear in me that's just, eating me whole, uh, so much so that like the whole front of my head goes gray. I actually dye my hair now. <laughs> the whole front of my hair goes gray. And while all my other friends, when, when their wives get pregnant, they gain weight with their wives, I start to lose weight. And I, I can't sleep at night. And anything my wife tells me is wrong, I'm obsessing about it. I'm you know, staying up all night long. I'm, I'm, I'm just a wreck. You know, the slightest little thing could tip me off. And she's about eight or nine months pregnant. And my daughter, Brooklyn, who I'm still extremely tight with, she asked me if this was the same time that Lauren passed away. 
And I tell her, yes. And she asked me, how did Lauren die? And I just fell apart. I just wept and wept. I mean, I couldn't stop crying. And my little girl, she comes over to me and she wraps her arms around me and she says, Daddy, I used to dream about Lauren. And she told me to tell you that it's okay. After my um, son was born, healthy and beautiful, um, the next March, I went back to Jacksonville Memorial Gardens. And instead of like wandering, looking for a grave that I can't find, I actually went inside. And I asked them, you know, why can't I find my daughter? Help me. And they told me that when Lauren was buried, uh, we didn't have a lot of money. We could barely afford the plot. And we never paid for a permanent stone. That we just had a temporary marker that had been pulled up. And so I, I, um, I paid them to put a marker down for my daughter, but I've never even seen it. See, I, I didn't have to go back there anymore because Lauren told me that it was okay. Thank you. That was Al Letson. Al is a poet, playwright, and broadcaster. His show, State of the Reunion, can be heard on public radio stations across the country. He's now the father of four children. In a moment, our final story about a Thanksgiving dinner gone horribly wrong. The Moth sponsors include LD Entertainment and Roadside Attractions. Presenting Judy, starring Renee Zellweger as Judy Garland. 30 years after she shot to stardom in The Wizard of Oz, Judy arrives in London for a tumultuous run of sold-out shows. In theaters Friday, September 27th. And from Atlassian, a collaboration software company powering teams around the world, committed to providing the tools and practices to help teams plan, track, build, and work better together. More at Atlassian.com. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. I'm Katherine Burns, and you're listening to the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. The stories you've heard so far have been from our main stage, which are more formal nights where the shows are cast ahead of time and rehearsed. But next, you're going to hear a story from our open mic story slam competition. The shows are a lottery. People show up, their names go in a hat, 10 get picked, and one is declared a winner. Here is Story Slam champion Jeffrey Rudell live at the Moth. So my last Thanksgiving ended at exactly five minutes after five on the fourth Thursday of November, 34 years ago. Let me explain. Both of my parents were lower middle class people with upper lower class educations. My father was a foreman in a paper mill. My mother was a bank teller. We lived in a split-level house in a subdivision that went bankrupt shortly after they bought into it. Inexplicably, in January of 1974, my father came home and 
announced to my mother that he had sold everything and bought a farm 60 miles away. The farm turned out to be 80 acres of untilled clay, a heap of rusting equipment, and two Holstein cows. They argued until my mother agreed to pack up everything and move. Everything including her prized set of chartreuse-colored Russell Wright crystal. Within a month, my father had built a chicken coop, gotten the tractor fixed, and purchased a bull. The bull arrived and went straight to work. Now, the next nine months went as you might expect, which is to say farming is not for amateurs. So any mistakes that could be made were made, beginning with breeding cows in March. Our first cow went into labor and calved on Thanksgiving at 4 o'clock in the morning, this being Michigan and a particularly cold season in our unheated barn. It died less than an hour later. Now, seeing his assets frozen on the barn floor drove my father to take desperate steps to, pr to sort of uh, protect his remaining investment. So he covered the floor of our family room with a large plastic tarp, put down a bed of straw, and brought the remaining cow into the house to have its calf. <laughs> By noon, both mother and calf were warm and sleeping in the room next to our kitchen. My father put a bale of straw in front of the doorway between the two rooms to uh, keep them in place. Now, while we were tending to the calves, my mother was in the kitchen, banging pots and pans and muttering about it being a family room, not a maternity ward sort of thing. Now, every Thanksgiving, it was my mother's custom to remove from her china cabinet one small pale green crystal cordial glass into which she would pour a single jigger of sherry to sip while she cooked. At no other time did my mother drink, and to the best of my knowledge, no other piece of crystal was ever used. Now, she loved this crystal. She used to brag that that crystal was the only thing she had that wasn't second-rate or second-hand. So, the afternoon goes on, relatives arrive, my grandmother makes a comment about, what is that awful smell? But uh, a sharp glance from my mother is enough to keep her from making it a second time. At five o'clock exactly, turkey is put on the table, we all sit down to dinner, and my grandfather says grace. Now, while God is being distracted by my grandfather, uh, a lesser spirit overcomes the calf, and it leaps over the bale of straw and comes charging into the kitchen and crashes into the table. What happens next happens really fast. My mother screams. She grabs her cordial glass, stands up, knocking over her chair in the process. My father, more startled by my mother's screams than anything, sort of half stands, half lunges at the calf, which by now has its nose in his plate. I will never forget that slow motion look of horror on my mother's face as she watches my father rise a little bit and reach for, but not quite reach, equilibrium before falling backward into the china cabinet. Somehow, <laughs> somehow my father escaped injury, but every single piece of crystal shattered. Everything save the one glass in my mother's hand. Now, for a child watching all of this unfold, it was fantastic. <laughs> but that was our last Thanksgiving together. And for the remainder of their marriage, that glass sat on my mother's dressing room table with her wedding ring in it. For all the years in between, on the fourth Thursday of every November, my mother took great pleasure in preparing a dinner of roasted veal. <laughs> Thank you. That was Jeffrey Rudell.
Jeffrey is an author and paper engineer who lives and works in New York City. A lot of our time is spent hunting down great stories. If you have a story, please reach out to us. Go to themoth.org and leave your story right on our pitch hotline. We've heard from a lot of you already, and we've been having a blast listening to your pitches. And here's one we liked. Hi, my name is Rachel Abrams. My story is about the summer before I left for college of 2005. My dad was teaching a course in the atomic bomb. He wasn't a physicist or a historian. He's just a screenwriting professor. And he's had this lifelong fascination with the Cold War. And he was always kind of emotionally unavailable to me. Um, I knew he loved me, but he never really made it very, very clear. But he was nervous about me moving to New York City for school away from home. And at the beginning of the summer, he said he wanted to build me an emergency terrorist attack kit. And at first, my mom and I kind of laughed this off. But as his class got more and more intense and he started talking about how quickly and painfully people would die if they were at the epicenter of an atomic blast, the items he added to this kit got more and more intense. At one point, he put in potassium iodide pills for, um, for nuclear poisoning or something um, and a 10-pound bar of chocolate in case I got my period while I was under siege. Um, and so at the end of the summer, I finally realized that my father, this kit, was his way of saying how much he loved me and how much he would miss me. And it took me a whole summer of him adding items to figure that out. We hope to have some of you develop your pitch into a full story and tell it at a live Moth event. So please go to our website, themoth.org, and leave your pitch. That's it for this episode of the Moth Radio Hour. If you want more Moth, go to themoth.org, where you can learn about all of our programs. We hope you'll listen next time, and that's the story from the Moth. Your host this hour was The Moth's artistic director, Catherine Burns. Catherine also directed the stories in this hour, along with Jennifer Hickson. Come on, a first line of your story. The rest of The Moth's directorial staff includes Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Jenna Weiss-Berman and Brandon Ector. In 2006, my dad was cheated out of the Nobel Prize in physics. <laughs> Moth stories are true as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. There's uh, blood on these hands. I've looked death in the eye and liked it. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from John Zorn and Tin Hat. Spring is not really that big a deal in the Amazon rainforest. Thank you. The Moth is produced for radio by me, Jay Allison, at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, with help from Vicki Merrick. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. If you're planning on booking a night in jail, do your best to get the room without the Nazi. <laughs> the Moth Radio Hour is presented 
by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. So my old Italian grandfather rolls up in his Galaxy 500, gets out of the car, adjusts his Bing Crosby hat, rolls his toothpick, looks at my dad in his loincloth holding the talking stick at the rainy demise. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.